in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Oil and Gas HSE podcast sponsored by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, because we want everyone to go home safe every day. Today, I'm in Houston, Texas at the International Risk Management Institute's Energy Risk and Insurance Conference. I'm joined at this time by this morning's opening keynote speaker for the event, Daniel Wagner. Daniel's the founder and CEO of Country Risk Solutions. Good afternoon, Daniel. Good to be with you, Russell. Well, thank you. Country Risk Solutions. Country as opposed to the city. So you handle Hicktown risks? <laughs> How did you know? I'm kidding. I heard your presentation this morning, and it was both interesting and extremely sophisticated. So tell us really what Country Risk is, and tell us about yourself and your background. Well, more to your point, there's country risk in every country risk. How does that sound? That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Okay. <laughs> so country risk is all about the risks associated with trading, investing, and lending abroad. And what my firm, Country Risk Solutions, does is help people understand and manage those cross-border risks. And we're all about looking at due diligence, pre-investment due diligence, producing customized country risk analyses, and the acquisition, of course, of a form of insurance called political risk insurance. That's pretty much what we do. So you actually, you provide that insurance? We play a broker and advisory role. Okay. For the companies that, uh, that actually write that type coverage. That's right. And it's a bigger industry than you might think. Political risk insurance, 30 years ago when I started out in it, was pretty small. But now it's a multi-billion dollar industry with lots of different players on the brokerage and the underwriting side. Wow. Well, I, I can imagine after listening to your presentation this morning. You know, uh, your presentation this morning focused on three things, uh, geopolitics, cyber risk, and artificial intelligence. And at first glance, uh, these may not seem like topics that relate to HSE, uh, but actually that's not the case. First of all, in the area of geopolitics, you had a what I thought was an interesting way to identify countries that you might not normally want to go to that are not safe. <laughs> you want to talk about that for just a minute? Well, at the time I was joking about it, but only half joking, I suppose. In, in the old days when we weren't quite as sophisticated in this business, we might have just looked at the uh, colors in a flag and been able to identify, joking, I'm just joking, you realize, right. that with... The, the types of colors in the flag would identify a country where you don't want to go. Similarly, you could pretty much rule out almost any country that has a Z in its name. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's true. And the problem is, as you pointed out this morning in, in your presentation, if you're in the oil and gas industry, while most of us uh, might be uh, warned to not go to these countries and to stay out of them, but if you're in the oil and gas industry, you may not have a choice. Uh, so let's talk about these countries and, and, and how do you keep safe? Well, that's exactly right. I think in many industries, people have the luxury of saying, you know, I, I really don't feel comfortable going there. I'm not going to trade, invest, or lend there. But when you're in the energy business, you often have to go exactly in those places where you might not otherwise want to go. 
either for business or for pleasure. And so hats off to the energy industry for having the bravado and the guts and the wherewithal to do all that stuff. Very other few industries could say that they have that. So it's all about also being smart and, and staying safe when it comes to going to these places, as you might imagine. Much of it has to do with common sense, which is, did I plan properly? Did I do some on-the-ground due diligence? What do I really know about this place? Because you can't go and invest in these countries and rely on somebody else to do it for you. You have to go there and do it for yourself because the stakes are so high and the risks are so high. So if you're going to play ball there, you really have to go there and spend some time and figure out you know, which end is up. So if you're in charge of HSE, you got to really do your homework. you got to do your homework for any aspect of trading, investing, and lending in these countries because the risks are everywhere and they come from completely unexpected places. And so is that part of the insurance coverage that is provided in this uh, geopolitical coverage? Or Sure, there's a range of different coverages. My specialty is this political risk insurance and for people who don't know much about it, uh, it's basically got two sides to the balance sheet, the trade side and the investment side. On the investment side, this is all about non-commercial risks. So this is about the action or inaction of both a host or a home government. What do I mean by that? I mean, for example, expropriation of your assets, inability to convert and transfer currency, bring your profits home, an act of terrorism, or a government not paying for a contract that it signed or exports that you made to it. On the trade side of the balance sheet, it's what you might imagine. Import and export, license cancellation, wrongful calling of on-demand guarantees, non-honoring of letters of credit. So it runs the gamut. It's pretty broad coverage and stuff that really matters. Well, and so, you know, if, if, if you've ever had a, a 101 course in risk management, you know the number one thing in risk management is risk avoidance. But then if you can't avoid it, then how do you deal with it from there? Sometimes insurance is the only way to do that. Well, I was going to say that's a really good way to avoid it. Of course, you have to have a good story to tell. The idea being the insurers won't just insure any old thing from any old place. It has to be a sensible type of investment or trade transaction. You have to be able to demonstrate that you know what you're doing there. Hopefully, you have a, a, a track record and a history there that's favorable. And you have to be able to say, I've done my homework, and here's why. And then there are some countries the government just says you can't go to, right? There are. There are plenty of countries that you can't go to, as in this case, as Americans. But every country has their do-not-go list. It's unfortunate, too, because there are some ripe investment opportunities in almost every country. I like to say there are good investments in bad countries and bad investments in good countries. It's all about being able to tell which is which. And that has to do with politics that are above our pay grade a lot of times. It's not just politics, though. I mean, you know, there's, as I spoke about this morning, there's this mosaic of risks that we're all in the middle of and we may not even realize it. There are trends and risks combined, which take into account technology, politics, economics, sociocultural issues, and the environment and a range of other things. And they're all interconnected. So cyber risk is interconnected with inequality, and technology risk is connected with environmental risk. And if you think about the world in those terms, it really puts into perspective just how broad, broadly you have to be knowledgeable on the world and how you have to do your own homework almost every day. You have to stay informed. 
If you're going to be in the international arena and you aren't doing your own homework, you're relying on a five-second soundbite from TV news rather than really understanding what this stuff is. Because in my experience, you know, all these talking heads on television, yeah, sure, they're plenty smart, but they're not necessarily any smarter than any of us who've been out there in the trenches. We all have an opinion. We all know you know, which end is up, and we all know what the difference is between something that smells right and something that doesn't. Also important in that regard to take into account your intuition and your gut instinct. We all have it. We all know when something doesn't smell right. And when you have a sixth sense type of feeling that this may not be the right transaction for me, run the other way. That exactly. Well, since you mentioned cyber risk and that sort of thing, that was that was the next thing you talked about. You talked about the problems of uh, cyber security. And uh, I thought there were at least a couple of things, and there's probably more. We may discover them here as we talk, but th- that relates to safety and the environment, as a matter of fact, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. But uh, you said that our biggest problem with cybersecurity right now is awareness or lack of awareness. And it seems like HSE people battle that that all the time, this this awareness thing and this, uh, it could never happen to me and so I don't have to follow the rules and that sort of thing. And uh, that that happens in this area of cybersecurity just like it happens in the area of safety, doesn't it? It certainly does. And I think what distinguishes cyber risk is that it's still relatively new and most people just aren't familiar with it. They do assume that it's somebody else's problem, but it's all on our doorstep. You know, one quarter of all the people in the U.S. are going to have their personal identification stolen in the course of their life. I've had mine stolen. My father had his stolen just last week. It's going to happen to somebody that you know. But beyond that, it's really about an orientation in your own mind, in your own business, about taking the idea of cyber risk and taking it from the back burner and putting it on the front burner and saying, this is something I'm going to spend some real time and some real resources on because we cannot afford to be purely reactive on this subject. If you do that, it's just going to be too late. Your number's going to be up and you're not going to be able to react. In order to be prepared, you have to spend some real money, devote some real resources, train your people properly because the greatest risk is between the keyboard and the chair. It's people in your own organization. That's where 95% of the risk emanates. And even if you train your people on a regular basis, time and time again, you're going to find that there's one or more bad apples in the bunch who inevitably, you know, open up the wrong attachment or click on the wrong thing. And then you've got a problem. They wouldn't have done it necessarily intentionally, although it's possible that some people might have. You might not know it because organizations are not generally accustomed to testing their own people for their cyber hygiene. You know, when you hire people, do you ask them, you know, how do you address cyber risk in your own home? And what do you know about cyber risk? And have you ever had a problem in another organization that you've worked in with cybersecurity? I mean, we we can't be shy about asking these questions. The stakes are just too high. Well, in fact, I was just talking to an IT guy uh, just last week, and their company sometimes uh, sends out their own phishing emails to see who falls for them and, and to try to try to train them in that And way. somebody inevitably does, don't they? I, I, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So something that I think uh, HSE people may not, may not think about, though, is how cybersecurity affects actually safety and environmental issues. Because we have so many things now that 
uh, wellheads, pipelines, you know, all these things that are controlled by computer. And, and if somebody hacks into them, you know, you can have discharges, you can, ha- you can, you can, you can, uh, uh, equipment can fail, people can get hurt, you can damage the environment, all because of, of cybersecurity. And, you know, so HSE, it seems to me like, it seems to me like these companies had, had better learn how to integrate or cooperate with one another, you know, to, to talk about the possibility of how these, these things can happen. Well, there are several things I'd like to say about that. One is that infrastructure is front and center in the cyber war, you know, crosshairs. I don't know if many of your listeners are aware, but last year, President Trump said that he would treat an attack on America's infrastructure, a cyber attack, uh, as an act of war. And the reason that he said that is that there's malware that's infected in infrastructure all over our country, with power grid, water purification systems, et cetera. And by the way, we have malware in other countries' systems that we have put in place. So we do the same thing. We do the same thing. But the, the stakes are so high that uh, nobody's ever pulled the trigger on that. And if they do, President Trump wanted them to know that he'll treat it as an act of war. Imagine this. I mean, we've got uh, trillions of dollars of infrastructure in our country, and a lot of it's based on 1970s technology. We haven't updated it. The cost associated with updating it would probably be trillions of dollars itself. That's part of the reason that it hasn't been done. Yet every year that goes by, we become more and more vulnerable. We fall further and further behind. I would love to see this become a real priority in the U.S. Congress. But every time somebody raises this issue, it's like, leave it to somebody else or it costs too much money. We can't, we're getting to the point where we can't avoid it much longer, just like we can't avoid you know, building new bridges and new railway lines much longer. I mean, our infrastructure is literally falling apart. So <laughs> we, need to, we need to put that on the front burner as well. And we got to find some politicians who won't keep kicking everything, kick the can down the road. Everything seems to get, get kicked down the road. And- oh, that's, you know, that's true, and I, I, I agree. However, it really is incumbent upon these politicians' constituents, which is all of us, to make them know that we want this to be a priority. If we don't, they're just going to assume nobody you know, in the home district knows the difference. And that certainly is not the case, certainly not with HSE professionals. I think that's a very good point. You know, it was James Garfield who said about, about the Congress, he said, you look at what kind of Congress you have, and it's only a reflection of who the voters are. That's exactly right. And that's, that's, we get the Congress we deserve. That's, so. yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, well then, let's, let's, let's move to AI. Oh, I do want to talk about one other thing, and, and you, if you don't want to talk about this, that's fine. But you, you said something. It was just maybe I wasn't listening or I was taking you know, sometimes, – sometimes when you take notes, which I took a lot of notes during your presentation, sometimes you miss something else because you're so busy taking notes. But you uh, – talking about cybersecurity and, and geopolitical, you said something about Putin and what he had done. You know, I, I really – find it hard to believe because even uh, even well I don't want to get I don't want to get political here but but can a foreign country really affect a, an election I mean what what did Putin do well absolutely but let's back up a second you could ask many people around the world has the US affected their elections in Iran and Guatemala and Chile Nicaragua, et cetera? Absolutely. So that's one of the things that countries do. But in the modern era, 
they do it with cyber warfare. And there's not much doubt in anyone's mind that Mr. Putin was responsible for what happened in 2016. What I said was, that's bad enough. But it's even worse in my mind that it was so easy for him to interfere with our election, not just in 2016, but again in 2018, and presumably in 2020 and beyond. So what's the issue here? The issue is that we have 50 different election platforms with 50 different approaches to cybersecurity. We need to federalize all that so that individual states and localities don't have the freedom to say, oh, I'm not going to spend any money on that, or here's what I'm doing, and it's different from this other county or city down the road. We can't afford that anymore. I mean, we've really got to get with the program. We have to centralize this process, or what happened in 2016 is just going to keep happening. So my question is, what was worse, the fact that it happened or that it was so easy that it happened? Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so let's talk about artificial intelligence. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm dumb about artificial intelligence, so how does that relate? Oh, let's talk about how it relates to safety, because actually the last podcast that we did, uh, we did with, uh, with IBM, and they've actually taken artificial intelligence to bring safety programs to just really elevate them and, uh, and give uh, HSE people tools that they never had before. So AI first of all, can either be feared or embraced. And I would vote for a healthy dose of fear, but also really a, a commitment on a lot of businesses and government's part to embrace it because other businesses and other countries are doing just that. And if we don't do the same thing, we're just going to be falling further and further behind. That said, I think an important role that AI can play is enhancing what it is that we do and do it much better. And if businesses embrace the ability of AI to enhance security and safety and the environment, et cetera, for their own businesses and for our society overall, we're going to be much better off. So a lot of, a lot of your listeners may not know much about AI. Their companies may not have even thought about introducing AI into what it is that they do on a routine basis. But here again, just like is the case with cyber, if you make a commitment to invest, devote the resources, spend some time thinking about it on a routine basis, you know, five, 10 years from now, your business is going to be much better off. It's going to be more efficient. It's going to be more competitive. Your safety record is likely going to be better. So this is another one of those cases where it's a back burner issue. Most people aren't thinking about it. It's time to start thinking about it. So how far along are we on artificial intelligence? Because you mentioned something, something else. You mentioned artificial superintelligence. You, you went from AI to ASI. Yeah. So first of all, there's a couple of different ways maybe to look at AI where we are. We get really excited when a robot jumps up and down, and yet we're thinking that's a long way from being able to do some of the things that have been envisioned you know, in science fiction films, for example. On the other hand, you think about 2001 A Space Odyssey, and you think about the computer HAL, and we have that technology today. It already exists. So for us, it's really a question of an orientation to and a comfortability with AI, I think. I would like to see that our own government has a achievable, realistic platform and a program 
to link the best and the brightest in the government with the best and the brightest in the private sector so that we can compete effectively with the Chinas of the world. As I said this morning, China is spending $150 billion over the next decade to become the undisputed leader in AI. They get it. They see the writing on the wall. They are spending all this money, making all this effort, you know, M&A, acquiring talent left and right, revising the nature of their university system, et cetera, putting electric cars in everywhere, automating banking, on and on and on. So that, you know, by 2030, that's what it'll be. I don't think it's going to take them that long to get there. Meanwhile, while we have tremendous capabilities in this area, the government and private sector are doing their own thing. They're not really synchronized. And one of the reasons that China has been able to make the progress it already has and will achieve, in my estimation, what it will do in the next five to 10 years is because they're synchronizing the public and private sector. And if we were able to do that successfully, we could potentially leapfrog above them. But in my book last year, AI Supremacy, I talk about this race between governments and companies. And there's literally on the cover of a book, you know, this race between robots, you know, the heads represent the countries, they've got the flag of countries, the bodies represent the, the major industries of these countries. And this, they're literally running this race on a racetrack. And my contention is that whoever gets in first place isn't going to stay there for long because some company or some country is going to supplant them with some comparative advantage that they have. And it's going to be this perpetual race. I think it's, um, it's already there. And those countries and companies that are in it in a big way, you know, you can name to me who they are. It's, you know, China and the U.S. in the lead. And those companies in these countries are, you know, Amazon and Facebook and Google and Tencent and Baidu and Alibaba, et cetera. They're already so far advanced that they're leaving everybody else in the dust. And those folks are never going to be able to catch up. They better get with the program soon. Well, you know, along those lines, and we referenced this a while ago, the problem that safety people have all the time is 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 getting people to to realize it can happen to them i uh you know you shouldn't text and drive okay but it ain't going to happen to me you know mm-hmm. that, that that sort of thing you so you said something that i thought was interesting this morning that 150 years ago china was the the premier country you know, and so we here in the United States, I mean, we've all our lives, we've been number one and we don't ever we don't ever see the possibility of us not continuing to be number one. But boy, that can that can change. And, and historically always has changed, hasn't it? Well, it depends on your frame of reference, doesn't it? So for the Chinese who were the world's largest economy, you know, the world's strongest military power at one point in time, they're picking up where they left off. I mean, China has a multi-thousand-year history. The U.S. has been around for a couple hundred-plus years. I mean, from their perspective, they're saying, hey, what is there to understand? (laughs) We've been here before. And what's difficult for us, I think, is to adjust to the idea that we may not be on top forever. I mean, China's already the second-largest economy. They're going to be the largest economy in the next decade. Soon enough, they will be its largest military power. It won't happen tomorrow, but I can tell you this. Most people don't realize it, but China already has the world's largest navy, has 
Has anyone ever spoken about that? They don't have the most number of aircraft carriers, and they can't project their power in you know a blue water navy basis. But on the other hand, you know they have some very substantial capabilities, and that capability actually also extends into space. Take for example the lunar landing last month. You know, an amazing achievement by the Chinese, especially since they've never landed on the moon before. What they did is they landed a probe on the dark side of the moon. Nobody else had done that before. How did they do it? They, first of all, put a satellite in orbit in the opposite side of the moon, the dark side of the moon, so that when their probe landed there, they could actually communicate with it. Now, that's a great scientific achievement, but it's not just for show. It's not just to say, hey, we're there too. They're setting themselves up to be able to conduct space warfare, just like the Americans and the Russians are doing. This is also something that people aren't talking much about. And I know we're getting a little off topic here, but... No, but it's interesting. It has to do with all our safety. (laughs) Well, it does. What I'm meaning to suggest is there's a lot going on that people aren't talking about. Nobody's, Nobody's heard before. And the people in our military and their military, they understand what's going on. The rest of us generally do not. So... We have, to be, uh, we have to be educating ourselves because they're not going to be educating uh, this stuff for us. You know, if I, if I, someone like me, who's outside the AI arena, can write a book on AI using only open sources, there's no reason any of us can't become similarly informed on any topic we want to. It's a question of devoting the time and doing the research. Yeah, you know, they uh, showed up at Tom Clancy's door Uh, after he wrote his first book, Hunt for Red October, and said, where'd you get all this information? He said, at the library. There you go. (laughs) And he became quite a sensation, didn't he? (laughs) Exactly. Well, okay, so you mentioned your book. You've actually written six books, haven't you? I have. I started, um, my first book actually was on political risk insurance 20 years ago, but since 2012, I've written five And in the last four years, I've written four. And in the last year, I wrote two of those four, which is just ridiculous, right? But what I did was I made a a deliberate pivot. I I wrote about country risk management. And I wrote about, uh, in a book called Global Risk Agility, the clash between man-made and natural risk, which itself is is an interesting topic. But then I made a pivot. And I decided I wanted to write about some more cutting-edge mainstream topics. So I wrote the book Virtual Terror to cover cyber terrorism. And then I wrote AI Supremacy to address AI. And my latest book, which just came out last week, is on China. It's called China Vision. And it's a book I've wanted to write for a long time because I had written a lot about China over the last 15 years, so much so that it formed the foundation of this book. And I've been to China probably 50 times. I used to live and work in Asia. I've been going there since 1986. That all said, I'd never written a book about China. I had always wanted to. And what this book is about is how China sees the world, how China's government sees the world. On the cover, you'll see Xi Jinping as a caricature with a pair of military binoculars. And in the lens of the binoculars, all you see is the Chinese flag. So the message there is that Xi Jinping and China are trying to create a world in China's own image. And the impact that it's having on international relations is really staggering. They're running circles around us in Africa. They're investing tens of billions of dollars all over the world. They don't have to worry about pesky things like human rights. So 
They're so influential in multilateral development banks, in the UN and other international organizations. Nothing gets done without the Chinese wink and nod, just like used to be the case pretty much solely with the U.S. So they're really giving us a run for our money in lots of different areas. Wow, that's interesting. So if somebody wants to get a hold of a copy of your book, what's the best way to do that? Everything's on Amazon. Almost all the books have uh, print, Kindle, and audio versions. Okay, and it's Daniel Wagner, W-A-G-N-E-R? It is. I've got my own author page, in fact. Easy to find. Okay, and if anybody wants, if if any companies want to get a hold of you, uh, what's the best way for them to uh, to do that? Well, through uh, Country Risk Solutions, my email address is there, and I'm I'm also all over social media, and I'm Google proof. I'm everywhere. Okay, so uh, LinkedIn. You bet. Okay, well we'll we'll post the Country Risk website on the show notes for the podcast, and uh, try to remember to mention to uh, mention LinkedIn. One final question about to close out this artificial intelligence. How did you get so smart? <laughs> well, I'm not sure that, it's, that I'm so smart. I think it's all about having the time and making the commitment to research things. I'm fortunate that I research and write very, very quickly and easily. Boy, you must if you've done what you said you did in that time. Yeah, I'm not one of those authors who sits there and agonizes over every line. I just spit it out. And the way that I really uh, ramped up my ability to publish books quickly is that I abandoned traditional publishers because that's just an exercise in torture, if you ask me, not only because of the business model, but because of how long it takes to get things edited and out the door. With Amazon their self-publishing tool, I can literally load up the manuscript, put the artwork in for the cover, hit the enter button, and the next day it is published. It's awesome. And people buy it? You bet. All right. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's good to know. Okay, so we're getting close to winding this down. Uh, it's time for the Red Wing Safety Tip of the Week. You got a good safety tip for us? So let's see. A safety tip. Well, you know, I've traveled a lot all over the world. I've been to some really dangerous places. And I think the safety tip for me is, is all about using your gut instinct and your common sense to understand you know, when is the right time not to go somewhere and do something. And I would say pay real attention to that gut instinct. It doesn't lie, and we've all got it. Well, you know, that, that reminds me of a story, and I think it's a, it's a good way to, uh, to, to end the show about being aware. You know, Major General John Sedgwick was the highest-ranking Union officer to die during the American Civil War. And the story is that he was chastising his men for ducking at Confederate sharpshooter fire while they were preparing artillery in place. And he boasted, he said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. <laughs> and then minutes, or just a few minutes after that, a sniper bullet ended his life. So, folks, thanks for joining us. Be cautious. Be careful. And never be complacent. Thanks, Russell. Thank you. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. So what's the funniest thing you've ever seen in this industry? (laughs) 
Well, I'd have to say that is a memory that I've got in the far-flung country of Papua New Guinea, where I had gone some 25 years ago to do some due diligence on the ground for a mine that was going to be opening up in this really remote part of this really remote country. And the funniest memory that I have of that is spending a Saturday evening at the site of where this mine is going to be and looking at a row of dump trucks, drinking a bottle of scotch, and reciting Shakespeare in front of those dump trucks. (laughs) You must have had a lot of scotch. (laughs) We did. (laughs) That had to have been years ago, too. It was quite a while ago. Not allowed anymore. (laughs) Quite right. (laughs) Okay. 